Hi, I'm Dennis Dunaway, best known as being the bass player and songwriter for the Alice Cooper Group. And you're listening to Talking Blues. to start at the very beginning of your musical career. I want you to talk, tell me a little bit about the Year Wings, how that came about, and I guess the beginning of everything. I grew up in a musical family, uh, like my uncles and my, would uh, show up at my grandma's house and they'd, they'd all play like a Saturday night homemade uh, honky-tonk kind of a thing. Country Swing, Bob Wills and stuff. and. I had two cousins, the sisters, who sang great harmonies and stuff, and I would be the little kid, you know, that would be struggling to stay awake because I was loving it so much, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, but then you fast forward, and I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, 1963, and there's a double feature at a theater uh downtown. So it's two movies, Hercules Unchained. And uh, actually, it was, the opening movie was Peter Pan, the animated Disney thing. And, and I like Disney uh, because I was, at the time, I was an artist. I was so much of an artist that a lot of kids in grade school didn't even know my name. They called me the artist. Uh, but anyway, and also I was very uh, introverted back then. Uh, so so one of the things that appealed to me to go to this movie was I wanted to see the big giant muscular guy, you know, smash out of chains and knock down buildings and everything. Uh, but also it was Phoenix, Arizona in the summer and, and the theater had air conditioning, right, <laughs> which was a big draw in Phoenix. Uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm up in the balcony and uh, Peter Pan had finished and, you know, it was intermission and out come these guys and they set up this equipment and out comes Dwayne Eddy and the Rebels and they do three or four songs, you know, and it was so exciting. I'm like sitting there going, oh, my God, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and uh, at the time, that was 1963, around the time that uh, I was uh, a sophomore in high school and this this freshman came to school, Vince Fernier, who, you know, is better known as Alice Cooper these days. And uh, we took art class together and we connected because I love Salvador Dali and Magritte and, you know, and and he 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 was on board with that. So, you know, there were other people in the art class, but they didn't know anything about, you know, that they, you know, they were interested in other kinds of artists and stuff. But uh, I told him, I said, I, I want to start a band, you know, but it didn't really happen until uh, uh, almost a year later when the Beatles hit and they hit so big. They had the top 10 songs on local radio were all Beatles, mm -hmm. That's how big it hit. And so we just said, OK, uh, we were in the Letterman's Club because we were long distance runners. We ran cross country. We had a great team that was undefeated in our division. Uh, and Alice and I, just that year alone, an estimated 450 miles we ran. 
<laughs> wow. Uh, and we also ran long distance on the tr- uh, track team, the mile. And, uh, you know, the longer the race, the better chance we had of uh, winning. Uh, but anyway, so we decided that uh, uh, we wanted to start a band, uh, but it was going to be a spoof because the Letterman's Club was having sponsoring a uh, talent show. And since the Letterman's Club was sponsoring it, we couldn't be officially in it competing. But we talked them into letting us do a spoof of this new band, the Beatles, you know. And of course, we love the Beatles, but most of the other athletes, you know, were like, you know, we had to convince them that we were making fun of these long-haired guys, right? So so we called the, the band the Earwigs, and uh, we were supposed to be from Cesspool, England. <laughs> we, and we went out and bought these beetle wigs in uh, Woolworth's department store. So we wore wigs, so ear wigs. And it's also a little bug, you know, that's kind of like a beetle. And uh, we, we changed the lyrics to some songs to be sports oriented. You know, uh, last night I ran four laps for my coach. You know, he said I didn't even try much. Oh, come on, come on. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, and and it was it was a surprise to pretty much everybody because we kind of snuck backstage and then we got our wigs on and stuff and only the people behind the curtain could see, hey, what's going on here? And then we came out and did this show for the school in this uh, auditorium. And, uh, you know, and everybody, oh, that's funny. That's really funny. You guys should be on Ed Sullivan and stuff like that. But we were like, oh, my God, we got to start a real band. <laughs> this was great, you know. And even though uh, we had to recruit Glenn Buxton because we needed somebody that could actually play. Uh, Alice and I, just, I borrowed my dad's guitar and pre- pretended I could play. And Alice borrowed his dad's ukulele. And, you know, but Glenn Buxton could play. So he actually had an amp and we talked another athlete into playing a snare drum. Right. Uh, But okay, now we've got to start a real band and we got a lot of mileage out of this. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the girls would uh, smile at us when we walked down the hallway instead of, you know, whatever. And also Alice and I were in journalism. And so we kept uh, finagling stories about the earwigs into the newspaper. Okay. <laughs> yeah, an interview about our days in cesspool. And then we managed to talk. Uh, this auditorium was a, called a capitorium because it was an auditorium with a stage and a curtain, but it was also where all of the kids would go to eat lunch at school, right? right? And so uh, all of a sudden we became the the band that everybody loved to hate, you know, uh, and everybody would be having lunch and the curtain would open and it would be the earwigs again. You know, we'd be doing some more stick. And, uh, and, but then uh, we decided, okay, we're going to, we're going to really make this a band and we're going to make, we want to make a band that has artistic ideas like, you know, the picture of uh, the Salvador Dali picture where there's a cat flying through the air and a bucket of water frozen in the, the air. Yes. Okay. Well, we, Alice and I said, that's, we want to do a show that's like that. 
or like hell's a popping, you know? So we wanted to do a show that had so many crazy things that people would have to, everybody would walk out with their own different interpretation of what they saw. And we did that. We, uh, I went away to Oregon and worked on my grandpa's farm to get the money to buy my first base. And uh, during that time, Alice and I were writing letters. Oh, what Beatles song do we want to learn and what this and that? And then when I got back, Glenn Buxton and I went down to the Woolworths department store and, and bought a, a, a beginner's base, an airline base which was also known as Supro, I think. But uh, but anyway, so then I went over to Glenn's house and he showed me how to tune it and where the notes were. And, and he said, the most important thing is, before we even start, the most important thing is the feel. And that continued to be uh, something that Glenn and I, you know, Glenn always played from feel more than what notes to play, what scales, you know, it was always something had to do with what's the feel of the song, what's going to best support that. So we learned really fast. And by uh, 1964 Halloween, we did a, uh, we did the school dance, the Halloween dance. And uh, we played uh, the whole show. We, you know, we had that many songs in that short a period of time. Was was the theatrics there at that point? Like, did, did did the image of that Dolly painting? Were you able to execute that as a as a, as a show? It was Halloween, so Alice and I built. We got the the girls in the journalism class and the girls in the art class to help us, but we made uh, paper mache uh, tombstones, you know, and we painted funny things on them and. We got a white clothesline and we made giant spider webs on the sides of the stage. Then Alice and I got a refrigerator boxes and we cut them up to look uh, and shaped them to be like coffins. And then we painted them to look like wood. And then a friend of ours at school, his father was a carpenter and we talked his father into building us a guillotine. It wasn't as big as the one we eventually used. It was probably about maybe seven feet tall, but it was a guillotine. And, and uh, you know, we wore all all black. And, uh, uh, and I mean, we were so green. We didn't even know what a set list was. So what we did is we had this friend of ours, Ray Sadowski, who he put on this ghoulish makeup. So he had... You know, he looked like a, a, I don't know, a cross between a vampire and a ghoul, I guess. And he would, he was inside of the coffin on stage. So we would play a song and then we would all walk back to the drummer and talk about what song we wanted to do next. And and Ray would come out of the, the coffin and do some funny shtick. Uh, and then he, when he, when we were ready to get back in the coffin, we'd do another song, right? <laughs> So that that was this that was pretty much the story of the earwigs. We became, you know, we would we had uh, all of a sudden the attention of girls. Which let's face it, starting a band—that's what it's all about. <laughs> well, were there any other acts that um, were doing theatrics back then? Uh, no, not in Phoenix. Even bands on on television, you know. Eventually, the Who, you know, with 
uh, Townsend smashing his guitar was theatrical and stuff, but that came a little bit later. You know, we, as far as theatrics, there was one band called Phil and the Pranics, actually. And they had this stick that was like, uh, the drummer did a lot of singing. So he had a boom mic, you know, yeah. at, like this big, you know. So, so they had a song that they finished their set with. Uh, it was all cover songs, but this was like kind of like a real... Uh, fast, kind of a soulful tune, you know, and uh, the drummer would spin the boom mic and it would go around like a propeller and all of the guys in the band would would duck and it would go over their head and they'd stand up and then they'd duck again and this uh, thing kept going around. So that was about the only theatrical thing I can think of that anybody was doing. You know, other bands like uh, there were a lot of musicians in Phoenix at the time uh, a lot of bands going and uh, one of them became the tubes and they used to make fun of us for doing theatrics. If you believe that <laughs> now they not only do theatrics, they do some of our theatrics, <laughs> more power to them, whatever. They're, they're all good friends. I can imagine. I, I, I had a chance to talk to Roger Steen and, and I, I wondered about if there was a connection between the two bands both coming from Phoenix and both being very theatrical. Right. Well, Neil was in a in a band with Rick Anderson, the, the bassist. And he was also, I think, in a band with Vince Welnick, even though they may have been in the same band, but at slightly different times. I'm not I'm not sure. But but anyway, we knew all of those guys, you know. Uh we were all back then, you know, you you didn't have the competition uh, between musicians, uh, there was a lot of camaraderie because the Cowboys wanted to beat up anybody with long hair. And so we had to become a gang, you know, to, to defend ourselves for one thing. But also, uh, you know, the best parties in town were with going over to the other band house and they'd come over and hang out with us and all of that. So so we we're still friends. I mean, it's it's interesting. All of these years later, when the original Alice Cooper group uh, reunited to do the tour with Alice in England in 2017, the opening band was the Tubes. Really? All of these years later at Wembley, backstage at Wembley, there were eight guys that were from that era of, of Phoenix, Arizona uh, music scene. Wow. Um I got the impression that when you picked up the bass, it wasn't an instrument that you were really, um, I wouldn't say not connected to, but I think you wanted to be a guitar player and you were kind of voted to be the bass player. Is that correct? Well, sort of. Uh, not connected is exactly uh, the way to put it. Uh, I had a little record player that that you couldn't hear the bass on it. You know, you, it was, all you heard was, you know, treble. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason I became the bass player is because I was the last to decide. As soon as we decided we're going to learn real instruments, uh, Glenn Buxton already played guitar. He had a friend he wanted to bring in named John Tatum because John knew chords and John could get beer. And, <laughs> and we were underage, right? And uh, even though Alice and I didn't drink, we were athletes. Back then, athletes weren't the party guys. But uh, then John Spear, who was the original drummer, he immediately, I'm, he went out and found these, the, these drums for sale and bought them. 
so bass was the only thing left. We we knew we all knew Alice well enough to know that everywhere he went and to to this day, everywhere Alice goes, he leaves a trail of things behind him that, you know, and we figured he's not going to be able to keep track of an instrument, you know. <laughs> and so and also he could he could remember words. He could remember lyrics. So we he automatically beha- became the singer. Uh, so we would carry like a case of harmonicas and a tambourine and some maracas for him, you know, and uh, and then the rest of us would be responsible for showing up with our instruments. And also Alice, even though at the time he was just a skinny little kid that nobody could take seriously, but he just, he did have a charm to him. You know, he was entertaining. He could make opening a can of tuna fish sound interesting. (laughs) So how did you become the bass player that you had become? Well, uh, you know, sitting down, going over to Glenn's house, and then uh, we would use his parents' stereo, and we would put on mostly Rolling Stones. So it was all blues-rooted, which is why I think I, I do fit in on your show. All blues-rooted. Uh, basically, you know, the, the British invasion was introducing America to our own music because blues and rhythm and blues, there was very few, it was very hard to find on the radio. And all of a sudden, here comes the Stones and the Beatles doing, you know, Little Richard songs and stuff. And all of a sudden, we're like, hey, wait a minute, we can find these records at the thrift store, you know. And uh, so we would put on the record and we'd keep dropping the needle until we figured out what that bass run was and what that guitar riff was. And Glenn and I would just go through album after album. Every weekend, I would ride my bicycle over to his house and uh, or figure out how to get my bass there or leave it at his house or whatever. And and uh, then I'd have to go in his bedroom and wake him up because he he would never get up until he absolutely had to. <laughs> and we didn't get together on school nights uh, until a little bit later. But uh, that was it. So Glenn and I would figure out songs. If Alice had a suggestion, we go, OK, we'll learn that one. And uh, but mostly we would figure out songs and then Alice would learn the lyrics. And because we became the house band at this popular uh, club in Phoenix called the VIP, which uh, Central Avenue was very much like the movie American Graffiti, where all of the hot rods and all of the surfers with surfboards in the middle of the desert, mind you. <laughs> it was six, six hours to get it to the ocean to surf, but there were surfers there in the desert. Uh, and they would cruise up Central Avenue, turn around at an, uh, I think it was an A&W place where you could pull in and they'd put your food on a tray on your window, right? That, right. And then they'd cruise up and the other turnaround spot at the other end was the VIP parking lot. So it was a happening place. It was supposed to legally hold, I think, 900 people, but we would pack a thousand in there. But we knew the guy that ran the place was kind of like Dick Clark. And he always wanted to keep up with what the kids were doing, right? What they were listening to. Therefore, he would have a a house band that would last like two weeks. 
and then he would get a different house band and it kept changing. So we decided, okay, we're going to use theatrics and we're going to learn so many new songs that two weeks from now, he's not going to recognize that we're the same band. And we, and that's, that was the beginning of it. We were really, we would uh, do something new every weekend, which meant four sets a weekend. And then it became, we had to do a different thing every night and then a different thing every set. So we had to come up with four things and we would do that by going out in the alley and grabbing the garbage cans and putting them on stage. And next thing uh, we would swipe the TV out of the boss's office and set it up on, on stage. And uh, one night we had a toilet because they were renovating the bathroom at this place. And it was actually belonged to the JCs. Uh, so the JCs would have all of their parties there and stuff. But then this guy, uh, Jack Curtis, rented it for the VIP club every weekend. Uh, but we could rehearse there whenever we wanted. So, you know, we were getting paid well. We had money in our pockets and we had new amps and everything. And and we were going gung-ho and packing that place and doing so many new things. The concept was Somebody, we wanted somebody in the audience to go tell their friend, oh, you got to see these guys. They, they had a toilet on stage, you know? And then when the guy comes down the next night, it's a different, that's, we don't do that. We do something else. We even did one night, uh, this bathroom they were renovating had an, one of those old iron bathtubs with the claw, claw feet. So Alice got in the front of it, like George Washington crossing the Delaware, and the rest of us lugged this thing from the back of the room through the crowd up to the stage and then did the show. And then he got back in. We lugged it all the way back. <laughs> you know, and then they're like, God, whose idea was this? <laughs> so at this point, this is now the spiders. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, we well, uh, right, because uh, we did an audition for Jack Curtis as the earwigs. And he said, you guys, I don't know what it is, but you guys have it. Uh, but the name's got to go. And and he came up with the spiders because uh, the other thing that made the VIP so popular and made us so popular is that he had connections with all of the disc jockeys in town. And we would blast advertisements all week long, you know, come down. Oh, oh right. He had this idea of the spiders and you're going to and we started hearing on the radio Saturday night, the VIP. The spider sanctum, 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 you know, and we're like, uh, Jack, what's what's the what's the spider sanctum? And he said, I don't know, but you guys are going to build it. And and it turned out. That, so we showed up, you know, like the three stooges, you know, trying to build something. And uh, we had uh, Scott Ward's father, the guy that built the guillotine for us, showed up with lumber and we built our own stage. And we put a spider web on the front and then we all wore black turtlenecks and tried to be as mysterious as we could. And and we made it happen. We barely got that thing built by the time they opened the doors to let the crowd in. In fact, we had a, a, sp a spotlight, uh, you know, spotlights in the parking lot, scanning the sky to attract people. And then inside we had carpeted this thing that wasn't completely finished to our liking. 
and Jack Curtis got a couple of go-go girls for that night, the big Spider Sanctum debut, right? And so we had to tell the go-go girls, okay, make sure you stand there because if you step over here, you might fall through. <laughs> I wonder at that point when, when, cause it seemed like things moved pretty quickly and, and you guys had a pretty big following in, in Phoenix very quickly. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to accomplish? Did you have goals back then? Uh, we were, we were driven toward this artistic uh, goal. We wanted to bring an artistic message somehow. The one I told you about before. We wanted to, we wanted people to come to a show, and then everybody has a different opinion of what it is. And we wanted people. We said we don't care if they leave hating us or loving us. We don't want anybody to walk out of here indifferent. <laughs> You know, and we said, all we want is to make people talk about us. So Alice, you know, with his uh, flair for exaggeration, you know, he would start rumors. So he would start a rumor and then it would, you know, how you pass the rumor around the table and it changes by the time it gets back to you. It was like that. We would say things, you know, even like uh, we did a show uh, at this uh park in Phoenix, Encanto Park, and it had a little band shell, like a miniature Hollywood Bowl kind of a thing. And uh, Neil Smith's group played there, the Holy Grail. And we prided ourselves on being the most theatrical, and we had established that at that time. But now other bands were starting to pick up on that. So Neil had spray painted uh, four-letter words on his cymbals. And uh, and they did this set, and they were a really good band. They did everything from like uh, "Help I'm a Rock" by Zappa to Paul Butterfield Blues Band, and they were great. And their singer was uh, Mick Jaggerish, you know. Uh, but um, uh, Neil had evolved out of being in a, a surf band by then. All of a sudden, now this is some uh, pretty cool stuff. But so they played, and Neil smashed his drums. And then the cops came up on stage and took him away because of the four letters painted on it. And we thought, oh, my God, everybody's going to be talking about that. we got to come up with something. So we, we planned this out. So we did our show. And then on the encore, we had John Spear, the drummer, and Alice start screaming at each other. And then they got into this big knock-down, knock drag-out fight. And then we... We finished the set without them. They stormed off and we were all looking at each other and, oh, my God, the, the spiders broke up. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and like many of our, you know, scams, we all would, we, we all would just swear, okay, when anybody asks us about it, act like you don't know what they're talking about. You know, like, <laughs> people like, oh, my God, did you guys, did you guys break up? And we're like, what are you talking about? You know, I don't, I don't know what you mean. You know, and then everybody would come to the VIP to see if we were had broken up or not. <laughs> and we were and we did a lot of stuff like that. It was all and until it got to the point where people were disappointed if we didn't try to pull something. When did you start writing your original songs? Uh, well, first of all, we eased into it because we were learning so many British Invasion songs at, for the VIP that we started doing medleys. 
you know, Rolling Stones medley. And we got really good at doing these segues. One song would be play half of a song and then it would go into another Stone song and a Kinks medley and all that. But then we decided, okay, well, we would like to at least give the impression that we're doing originals. So we started choosing bands that weren't that songs, uh, album cuts to learn rather than, so the animals would have uh, house of the rising sun, but we would learn other songs off the album that were great songs and kind of people started assuming as we wanted them to, that these were original songs. They hadn't heard them anywhere else. Right. Uh, Michael in, encouraged us to do, to start writing. So Alice and I wrote a song called Don't Blow Your Mind that actually made it to number 11 on AM radio in Tucson, Arizona. And we became a big act in the Southwest. But our friend, Dick Christian, who was our kind of guru, was saying, are you guys happy with this? You know, because I've been to L.A. You guys got to go to L.A. Do you, Are you happy with being big fish in a little pond? Or do you want to really shoot for the big time. We're like, well, I don't know. I guess we'll shoot for big time, you know? <laughs> and we all jumped in a, we jumped in a, a van that needed shocks and we drove to LA and we didn't even, I mean, we didn't even say how much money do we have before we left. We just all jumped in the van and drove to LA and we, and we didn't have enough money for a hotel room. So we slept in Griffith Park you know, where the James Dean uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> scene happened. We slept on benches in the park. And in the morning, we walked, started walking down to uh, Sunset Boulevard. And we ran across this guy early in the morning who had a, uh, they called him a roach coach, you know, but it was uh, sandwiches fresh daily in this truck, right? Therefore, he was at the dumpster in the park throwing out the previous day's leftover sandwiches so he could fill it up with fresh ones. And we showed up, and of course, we shoved skinny Vince to the front so the guy could see how hungry we were. And the guy, the guy looked at us, and he kept tossing sandwiches in, and then finally said, "Ah, take, go ahead, take them." And we moved in like a bunch of locusts, you know. And then uh, we ended up that night walking down Sunset Boulevard, and we were all dressed as crazy as we could. And man, things were happening. Buffalo Springfield over here, the doors over there, love over here. The the uh, Sunset Strip was so packed uh, with the babes and the hippies and everybody uh, that cars couldn't move. Cars would be would avoid that that street and the whiskey a go go and all this stuff. We couldn't afford to get into any of the places, but we right then were sold. Okay, we got to come to L.A. and we got to up our game. So the artistic thing at that point really kicked into high gear. We decided we're we're not so much interested in getting hit singles like we like, uh, you know, don't blow your mind. Our drummer wanted to continue doing that because he liked food. <laughs> and and we, we're like, oh, are you kidding? We're going to do something that's never been done before. We're going to do this artistic statement that that uh, nobody will be able to ignore, you know. And, and we came up with all this crazy music. And uh, 
you know, and and we were kind of the brunt of a lot of jokes in L.A. because of the way we dressed when we were walking down the street in daylight. You know, we looked like a bunch of, you know, uh, hookers or something. <laughs> and and we also had the long hair going. Uh, but but, you know, they made fun of us, but we had more gigs than most bands. There were uh, at the time we landed in L.A., I heard there were three thousand musicians had migrated there to make it, you know, and you couldn't even get an audition, let alone a gig. For one reason, uh, you know, it was nothing for Jimi Hendrix to walk in the door at the whiskey with his guitar and walk up on stage and plug in and start jamming with the band. You know, they didn't, and band, uh, it wasn't pay to play, but there were so many bands that, uh, that the competition was heavy, but we had a lot of gigs. I mean, we, we worked a lot, but we needed a a recording contract and our friends were the GTOs. We, we actually ran into them walking down the street, Sunset Boulevard in the afternoon. And here they come. It looks like the circus arrived from both directions. (laughs) And we're like, Oh, okay. Well, we, you look like kindred spirits, you know, and they're like, Hey, uh, we're going to a party. Do you guys want to go over there? And we're like, well, we don't have a car. And they said, well, neither do we come on. And we went to this party with them and then we became friends and Alice became close friends with Miss Christine. They were, it was a, you know, we were young. It was pretty much a hand-holding crush, I guess. But they both looked alike. They were both skinny. They both dressed alike, and 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 they would interchange clothes. You know, <laughs> uh, if you were walking down the street behind them, you would see cars honking and screeching their tires and screaming insults at them. But but if you didn't know which was which, you'd have to guess which one was Alice and which one was Miss Christine from behind. Uh, Now, uh, Miss Christine was uh, Frank Zappa's babysitter, uh, Moon Unit. And uh, the GTOs lived in the basement of Frank Zappa's log cabin, which was built by the famous uh, singing cowboy, Tom Mix. Well, I don't even know if he was a singing cowboy, silent screen cowboy. And uh, so... We kept begging Miss Christine. We lived in Topanga Canyon, which was 27 miles away. But Alice and I would walk all the way into Hollywood to Zappa's cabin. Good thing you guys were athletes. That's right. And uh, and so we'd go over and hang out with Miss Christine. And, and I would watch Baby Moon crawl across the floor and keep her from uh, bumping into anything dangerous, you know, I'd turn her in a different direction and watch her crawl the other direction. And Alice would be putting the charm on Miss Christine, get Zappa. We know he's got a new record label and we're perfect for it. Get him to come and hear us play. And, you know, our gigs were, they weren't regular. So all of a sudden we'd get a gig and then you'd have to wait two weeks and then we'd have three gigs. And it was like that. So Zappa actually promised to come see us three times. The third time he even showed up, he had to leave before we started playing. So now at this point, uh, Christine made the mistake of saying, well, you know, uh, Frank will be home tomorrow. We're like, we're coming over. Oh, no, 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 no. We're like, okay, we're coming over. Uh, And she said, okay, you know, he doesn't like to have people come over. But Alice put 
put a headlock on her pretty much, you know, and said, uh, well, how about if we come over tomorrow? Uh, you talk to him, and if it's not okay, then call us, right? Which was a safe thing to do because we couldn't afford a phone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, so she said, okay, let's say 9 o'clock, you know, and uh, and we left. And by the time we walked back to Topanga, Alice had turned the whole story into we, we have an audition, definitely audition at Frank's log cabin at nine o'clock in the morning, right? It might have even been early. Alice always says earlier, but but whatever. It was early in the morning. And so we stayed up all night. We were boiling our strings, you know, to help bring some brightness back to them without having to buy new ones. And we were even writing down what we were going to say to Frank and everything. And we showed up at early in the morning knocking on the door and finally Miss Christine opened the door and went into shock because we were already carrying amplifiers and stuff. <laughs> and she ran down the hallway. I'm it's frustrating because I'm the only one that remembers it this way. The other guys remembers that we went down to the basement to audition, but that's not what happened because the basement was full of the mother's invention, mothers of inventions equipment. And uh, that's where we had meetings with Frank uh, the next day after this. But this, she ran, uh, Miss Christine ran down the hallway and blocked the hallway. So we knew, okay, Frank's down there. So that's where we went. And we set up all of our equipment right outside of their bedroom door where Frank and Gail were asleep. And we started playing loud. We were playing so loud that the picture on the wall started going crooked. And the door, I mean, it was we didn't play for very long before the door creaked open and, and Frank's hand came out and he motioned for us to stop. So we did. And then he stuck his head out and said, let me have some coffee and then I'll listen. So a scramble began, you know, uh, Christine was freaking out and she told us to grab that card table over there and set it up. And she ran to the kitchen to get some coffee and you know, make, make the coffee. And she came back and then we played for Frank about, I don't know, I think we made it through about three or four songs. And then he said, okay, that's enough. You guys do time changes and stuff that I can't get the mothers to do. And I think that I, I'm not sure I buy that, but, but great, a compliment. And he said, but you know, I'm gonna, only gonna be here for three days. Do you have a manager? We're like, you know, what's that? <laughs> what's the manager? And he said, yeah, three days. Or, and I'm the only one that remembers it this way too, because everybody else remembers that he was pushing his manager on us. But I remember it that he was saying, you got to find a manager. If you can't, then maybe you can use my manager, but I'd rather have him focus on my career. Uh, but anyway, so uh, within that three days, Neil Smith's sister, who is now my wife, uh, she found Joe Greenberg and Shep Gordon because they came into this boutique where she worked. And she told, she said, you guys look like managers. And they're like, it was Cindy and her, her friend, Linda, who were young blondes, you know, and, uh, and, you know, later on, Joe Greenberg said, they could have said, are you roofers? And we would have said, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so they ended up coming up, uh, you know, they were interested because they heard Frank Zappa was going to sign us and they weren't managers. They had nothing 
they knew nothing about management. In fact, when uh, so then uh, we did this audition at the at the Cheetah Ballroom, which was uh, the old Aragon made famous by Lawrence Welk's radio shows being broadcast from there, which made Lawrence Welk famous and it made the Aragon famous. But now it had seen better days and it, they brought in these giant sheets of uh, stainless steel and this outrageous lighting system and, and you know, bands like The Doors and, oh, all kinds of bands would come through there. And we would, we would be the opening act. So now uh, there, there was a big festival for Lenny Bruce. And there was a stage out on the beach where... Iron Butterfly were playing and different bands. And, uh, but when we started, when we walked on stage, the GTOs were up front screaming for us, uh, the good friends that they were. And uh, Frank Zappa was in the back of the room and Joe and Shep were in the back of the room. And when we came on stage with our look and our crazy music, all the people that had just watched Neil Young or whatever, you know, they were... It was like uh, oil and water in L.A. at the time, the hippies and the freaks, you know, and the hippies didn't like the freaks and the freak. You didn't want to accidentally call somebody a freak if they were a hippie and vice versa. <laughs> you know, Zappa was kind of like the the leader of the freaks. Right. And we we didn't think we were either, but we were definitely closer to freaks than hippies. But the room was full of hippies that shouted insults at us and lined up at both of the exits. They couldn't get out of the room fast enough. And in fact, the room was emptying so fast that I looked behind us thinking there might be a fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and anyway, so we played thinking, oh, my God, we blew this, you know, and Zappa left before our set was over. But, uh, you know, Joe and Shep were like, they're like, oh, my God, the ability to empty a room like that. This is we've got to harness this power. You know, <laughs> it's like we've got Frankenstein's monster. We just have, you know, uh, and uh, was that a concern to you, though, that, that that your audience just disappeared? We were kind of used to it at that point, by, uh, to be honest. Uh, our androgynous look was something that. Uh, uh, even the freaks question, you know, when Zappa showed interest in us, all of a sudden, all the freaks had to reconsider their opinion of us because it's got his stamp of validity. And, oh, maybe I should give these guys a chance and stop making fun of them, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we got a record deal. And Joe and Shep were so green that when Herbie Cohen mentioned the advance, I think it was like, $3,000 or something like that. Joe and Shep thought that we were supposed to pay them that amount to get the record <laughs> deal. <laughs> yeah, that's how green we were. But Shep's hero was the Colonel Tom Parker, you know, who was famous for having the hot tin plate under the chicken so the chicken people could pay to see a chicken dance. Right. And all those things that he did with Elvis, you know, with the, the giant thing of Elvis on front of the venue. And then they they had a, a tarp over it and then they pulled it down and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. 
So they were definitely on board for the Barnum Bailey, you know, let's go get them. And we did all kinds of things with them. We got the deal. We went in the studio with Frank. Uh, Frank was sick the first day. And this is another thing that Cindy and I both, uh, see, Cindy and I both were there for everything. So we both have been able to keep our memories in check over the years. Right. Frank Zappa was feeling sick the first night from midnight to sunup. We had two nights to do pretties for you. And he was sick. He kept going to the bathroom and he looked pale and he kept complaining that he didn't feel well. And the second night he didn't show up. And Herbie Cohen, we said, okay, we got to bring in another producer. And Herbie Cohen, who already decided that Frank was spending money on something that he couldn't afford by hiring, bringing us onto his label. He said, he'll produce it. So Herbie Cohen came to the studio and immediately fell asleep on the couch. And here we were knowing nothing about recording. Uh, Ian Underwood from the Mothers, he turned into our producer. He did damage control and he assured us that Frank would he said, Frank is a workaholic. There's no way he wouldn't be here unless he's really sick. And the other guys looked at it like, hey, he Frank bailed on us, you know. Uh, but uh, the second night was damage control. And it was uh, us doing our best to try to come up with an album at the end by the time we got kicked out the second morning. But, you know, we 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 had a record. <laughs> and after that, uh, and then there was a long, long wait before it finally came out. It was like three months or something. We recorded in 68 and it didn't come out till 69. But in the meantime, the mothers had done a tour and Frank said he had played Pretties for You for the Beatles and that they all loved it. And we thought, oh, my God, we're going to set the world on fire. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and basically it made it to like 112 on the, on the charts, <laughs> barely made the charts. But we did do a tour with the Mothers of Invention, which was great. I mean, talk about an education standing next to the stage watching the mothers of invention or even watching their rehearsal we knew oh my god we've got to up our game because these guys are playing hundreds of different songs they they're not doing the same song twice on the entire tour but everything is impeccably tight and we're like okay we gotta we gotta get busy here and become pros you know we were like sponges the whole way anything that had anything to do with our music or our show that we thought we could use, we we would absorb that and we would use it. We didn't we didn't go for advice advice that was from people that was advice that would make us do what other bands were doing. You know, that we'd throw out the window. Well, you know, as far as we were concerned, if you didn't break the rules, how were you going to be different? Would this have been your first national tour or major tour? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, we our first tour was with the Birds in Phoenix. We played Phoenix, Tucson, and Phoenix. <laughs> and and then we did a lot of, you know, jump in the station wagon and, and go to uh, places along Route 66 and, you know, down to uh, almost down to Mexico and all of that. But this was our real tour where – 
where a string of things were booked that took us all the way to uh, Toronto and 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 things like that. So yeah, we were we were definitely we had wheels then. We had a van and we had a station wagon and we could pack everything into it and uh, and go. So okay, so you know, not many years after, you guys have a hit record and things blow up in a good way for you. Was that part of the goal? Did you dream that or was that ever in the cards? It was, in our mind, that's what, it, it was just at that point, we just figured, oh, finally, the rest of the world figured out that we're big stars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, but we I, believed in ourselves. We, all along, we believed in ourselves. We thought, we thought, Pretty's for you was it. And we thought easy action was it, you know, and luckily they both made it onto the charts barely, but, but we, not many bands got a second chance and not many bands got a third chance. This was our third chance, but we, we knew we were driving around. We had built a reputation, you know, the chicken incident in Toronto and the, and, uh, and touring with uh, Zappa, you know, our association with Zappa was a big stepping stone. So we had the reputation and we could draw people. But the one thing we didn't have was a hit single. And we decided, OK, we need we need this guy who's who's producing the guess who, you know, because when American woman comes on the car radio, and uh, these eyes come on the car radio, it pops out of the dashboard. So we need that guy. Well, we wound up with his apprentice, Bob Ezrin, who had never produced anything, but they got a deal with Warner Brothers who had passed on us way back in the Hollywood days because they said they, uh, Mo Austin and uh, Joe Smith said, walked out of the Whiskey A Go-Go when we opened for Led Zeppelin in 69. And they said, how can we go back to the board of directors at Warner Brothers and tell them we want to hire five transvestites? <laughs> I, I wonder, do you, do you think um, that, I know that was your goal to get a reaction and to do art, but do you think that ever held you guys back because of the way you looked or the fact that you had a theatrical band and maybe you might have not get, gotten credit for some of the great music that you, you created because... They saw it more as theater? You know, uh, chemistry of a band is so important. And we had five uh, different personalities. You know, Alice and I were on the same page, and we, we were all on the same page in certain things. But Michael was a high school football player, you know, and Glenn was the guy that smoked out behind the gym, you know, and all this stuff. And And we managed to talk everybody into this thing where we would do gigs and cowboys would stand in line to beat us up in the parking lot, but we believed in it. And, uh, and, you know, enough to talk Mike Bruce into dressing all, you know, glam out and everything. Uh, Cause nobody was doing that then, except maybe little Richard, you know, or Liberace or something, but that kind of didn't count as far as our uh, targeted audience. But we were driven to this goal. The other thing that helped that is that girls liked us. <laughs> you know, we, we attracted girls by dressing like that. You know, guys hated us, but girls liked us. <laughs> Stick with it, you know. We really did always believe in this fantasy that we were going to make it. 
you know, and, and what held us back at the same time, we knew that that's what made us different, you know, because we could have gone back and become a garage band and with follow-up hits to don't blow your mind and all that. But we're thinking that's already been done, you know, and also this stage act was gaining momentum. So it was working for us that way. Uh, so now we get a hit single. Now, all of a sudden, oh, now we can get gigs. Now we can afford to do some of these ideas that we've had that we could, you know, we couldn't afford food. So how could, how could we afford to get a, a, an electric chair? How could, how could we afford to, you know, do, do all these things? Lighting. We had our own lighting. Other bands didn't have their own lighting. I mean, Grateful Dead was advanced that way. They had lighting companies that would follow them around. But our lighting guy was part of the band. He would come to rehearsals and come up with the lighting to fit each part of each song. You know, and it was dramatic. It was uh, it was theatrical lighting. Nobody else was doing that. And, uh, you know, when you look at uh, even Alice's show today, it's got a great light show, but it's completely different. Back then, when we did a show, there was a lot of mystery on stage. You couldn't quite see everything that was going on, but but you knew s stuff was going on that you really wanted to struggle to be able to see. And on nights when it worked, it was uh, extremely dramatic, and you would see every single person in the room, their eyes were glued to the stage for the whole show. You know, so we had that. So so that's that kept our uh, spirits up. But, you know, getting a hit and all of a sudden now we can go out. We've And also we've got Bob Ezrin who helped, who showed us how to whip a show into shape like we had wanted to do by watching the mothers. Now we had a guy that could say, OK, you don't need that part in the song. You're not playing me one song. You're playing me five songs here. You got have too many parts, right? And we're like, okay, well, you're the guy, you know, uh, make, he, he chose I'm 18, you know, which we had a sprawling kind of moody organ bluesy thing intro that would finally kick into the song, but that would maybe make it on FM radio at the time, but not AM. So Ezra said, okay, get rid of the beginning. We're like, but we like the beginning. He's like, no, get rid of the beginning. And that's the first thing we did together. And one afternoon, we we whipped I'm 18 into shape. And uh, that became a hit. It was a giant hit in the Midwest because of CKLW and Windsor Canada had a transmitter that was too powerful to be legal in America. But it covered the whole Midwest of America and into Canada. So, and they were playing at, uh, at one point, they were playing at every fifth song in the rotation. They were getting to wow. uh, Rosalie Trombley, the girl with the golden ear, chose to make it a hit for us. And, and then it spread out. L.A. caught on slowly. New York City seemed to be the last. Our songs would be, you know, albums later, our songs would be playing everywhere except New York City. <laughs> Uh, we finally won them over, but they were stubborn. <laughs> I would presume by the time you did Billion Dollar Babies, I mean, the band was as big as a band could be. Yeah. 
We were number number one album in America and Europe and England. I mean, and I would presume tour was pretty huge as well. Yeah, the biggest grossing tour of 1973, uh, we outdid the Stones and Led Zeppelin. Wow! But we put but ticket prices were like four fifty, fifty. So we were putting it all into this show. We were putting our money into this gigantic stage, and we had our uh, uh, PA company coming with us. We had all of our own lighting and this gigantic stage. Nobody else was doing that, you know. The not even the Stones and not Led Zeppelin. They they caught on quickly. Other bands caught on quickly when they saw how successful we were. But but at that point, it was a future investment because ticket prices weren't expensive enough to be able to afford to do that and still make a profit. Which is, you know, as a, as a young fan going to those shows, it was like, oh, wow, they're playing in front of 16,000 people, 20,000 people. They must be millionaires. But obviously that's not the case. Well, especially since we called ourselves the billion dollar babies. <laughs> millionaires, that's not enough. We're billion dollar babies. <laughs> All right, so the next album is The Muscle of Love, which I was listening to this morning. And I, I think when it came out, I don't know if it was well-received, but in some ways I find that album matured quite well over the years. Uh, well, thank you. I mean, uh, it had uh, a major problem with the box that we designed. And, right. you know, and we paid, I think, two points, they call it. So in other words, we would give up a certain amount of money to have that stain put on the box. Right. So the cardboard box had a stain that we paid money to put that stain on there. And then record stores shipped them all back as being defective. <laughs> and that, that was a, that was the major thing that hurt uh, that album. Also, I think when record stores saw that one album, because it was a box they could fit four albums in that amount of space in their in their record bin. So uh, that was the big strike against it. Uh, the other issue uh, was following Billion Dollar Babies. You know, that would be tough regardless. And we had Glenn Buxton at the time was not playing consistently enough for us to, to rely on him coming into the studio and having not waste a day. That's pretty much what it boiled down to. And because Glenn Buxton wasn't on it, it changed the feel of the album, which I thought was also true on Billion Dollar Babies, but we were able to compensate enough on that one. But, you know, I I was very happy with certain things about the recording of uh, Muscle of Love because all of a sudden it felt more like the band was back, you know, where Killer and Schools Out had kind of like the producer was kind of bringing out the best in what the band wanted to do, where on on Billion Dollar Babies, it started to turn a little bit more like, okay, you guys are going to do this and you guys are going to do that. And then by the, so when we got to Muscle of Love, all of a sudden we felt more like the band was in control again. Uh, so we liked that, you know, and I'm, I'm very proud of certain songs on it, in particular, uh, Man with the Golden Gun. I thought we did a great job of 
uh, swiping John Barry style for the James Bond theme. Uh, if that would have been chosen over Lulu's to be the soundtrack for Man with the Golden Gun, that whole album would have had a whole different reception. Teenage Lament 74, which Neil Smith wrote, the background singing alone made it spectacular. I mean, we, we had Liza Minnelli, Pointer Sisters, LaBelle, a couple of LaBelle, and Ronnie Spector. Mm-hmm. That was our background singers. <laughs> and uh, not only that, uh, Liza did, she's the one that's singing that part on uh, Man with the Golden Gun, that amazing vocal part. And then uh, Hard-Hearted Alice, which Michael wrote, I thought summed up the, the mood of the band perfectly at that time. It's got this forlorn feeling, and that was kind of what the feeling of the band was with the not being uh, as tight of a unit that included Glenn in the studio, even though we were still all really good friends and Glenn was was happily doing live shows with us and everything and and taking part in the writing of those songs. I think that's another thing that people don't mention enough. You know, Glenn wasn't in the studio recording parts, but he had a lot to do with the, the writing of those songs. In your book, when you talk about Glenn, it, it was such respect and love that I just found it so touching reading it. And obviously, you go way back and... You, you started together and he taught you how to play the bass in some ways. Um, but it's, it's for me, when I was reading the book, I was totally moved by your description of Glenn and, and what he meant to you. Well, that's, I think that's true for all the band members. I mean, everybody loved Glenn and, and we, we were together, you know, uh, the, the entire band, you know, you know, we lived together. We stayed in the same hotel room. We, drove in the same car, you know, it's like, uh, we were family. So, so, uh, you know, and, and even though Glenn didn't get writing credits on hardly any songs, it was his attitude, his rebellious attitude and his edgy, you know, guitar playing and stuff that really was extremely important in the development of the songs and the image of the band. So when when the band decided that things were getting pretty heavy and everybody wanted to do their own thing, because I didn't, I never knew why the band broke up, but it was kind of like we, we have, or people wanted to do some solo work and work on their own stuff for a little bit. I presume that the pressure of being the Alice Cooper band was also great and it was nice to get away from that. But I got the impression that you were kind of surprised that it never the band didn't reunite immediately after. Well, it was the first time we ever didn't honor, uh, you know, our vote. You know, up until that point, the band voted on everything and the majority won and we all would do it. And, uh, you know, when you say people wanted to do solo albums, Michael wanted to do an album. And the only reason Neil went into the studio and I went in the studio to play with him was more or less to keep in shape, you know, to keep playing and, and figured, well, while Michael's doing that, then, then we'll do this. But Neil didn't release his album for decades after that. Uh, he, uh, we, we just wanted to stay in shape. The other thing that uh, had to do with taking that break 
is that uh, Glenn and Alice, you know, were drinking so heavily. We thought maybe if they're not on the road every day, that'll give them a chance to, to clean up their act, right? So that was the only thing that kind of talked me into going along with the break, even though I don't know that I would have had a choice. You know, and Michael, Michael had written so many songs. Uh, I'm not sure this was totally reflective on the album that he did, but he had written so many songs that would be a big hit if Paul McCartney put it out or something. But we would have to turn, you know, Baby, I Love You into uh, I Want to Kick a Puppy or something. You know, it's like we would take his songs and we would Alice Cooperize them for the character, right? And he thought, you know, I've got some songs that I don't really want you guys to do that to. And we thought, well, that's understandable. Why not? Other bands have people that are doing a solo album, you know. He can do a solo album. Glenn and Alice can get cleaned up. And we all voted and said, okay, we'll take a break. Michael can do his album. And then we'll do the next Alice Cooper album, which we thought we were doing when we did the Battle Axe. You know, we started, uh, we built this gigantic stage with hydraulic system that uh, underneath Neil's uh, drum riser, a boxing ring would come out slowly and the and the bars in the corner of the ring with the velvet red velvet ropes would slowly rise up into vertical position and lock into place and these two futuristic gladiators would come out and have a battle with these guitars that had axe blades on them and uh uh you know this was we were building this giant stage and meanwhile we're reading all these interviews about how we had to be replaced because we refused to do theatrics. <laughs> We're like, what? Wow. Wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Uh, so things, uh, yeah, things went, it was, it was very difficult for me to finally, for it to sink in that Alice and Shep had taken the name and, and ran with the ball because uh, in my mind, we were best friends and they would never do that, you know? And so I was kind of naive, you might say, I guess. Uh, you might definitely say. But um, but when we started writing the songs for the Battle Axe album, we thought, okay, now here we go. Now we've got this this thing going. And, uh, and we have a whole new concept for it and everything, and we were happy with that. But then uh, we couldn't uh, get any phone calls through, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, we're sinking our money into this and we're expecting the record company to pay for it and the management to help out here and and where's the singer and all that. And, and then it turned into a band that promoters thought, how can I hire you? Because Alice Cooper is doing a tour now and all of the advertisements for Welcome to My Nightmare was using our music and nothing was saying they nobody was saying anything about it. it's not the original band. And uh, so promoters are saying, how can we hire you? You're already out on the road as far as people know. And OK, well, now we uh, Michael decided, OK, or we kind of decided that Michael would be the lead singer. But now 
how are we going to do a show? How are we going to headline if we don't have the Alice Cooper name? And no band in the world would have us open for them with this gigantic stage and everything. So, and, and also we can't, it'll cost us a fortune to store that stage somewhere. If we want to go out, you know, get back down in the trenches and go out without the stage. So we got into uh, an era of devastating emotion about our friends, you know, uh, kind of turning their back on us. And, and also uh, financial, it was, it was a major financial loss. I can imagine, I, I don't, I know that you're still, I mean, I get the impression that your relationship with Alice is pretty good now, at some point. Yeah, yeah it is, it's just like with what I said about with Glenn, you know, we, uh, we've always uh, been good friends, all of it, everybody. So was it, I mean, I presume there were very difficult times, but was it easy to get back to that friendship? No, it took, uh, uh, you know, there was, I think the barrier was that the spin that was coming out about why we had to be replaced wasn't matching up with what we were saying. And interviewers weren't interested in what we were saying. <laughs> So we kept reading about how we had become too difficult to work with and we refused to do theatrics and and uh, we all wanted to do solo albums. Well, why did you say we all wanted to? Michael wanted to do a solo album, you know, and it wasn't the end of the world. And uh, even, you know, we never said, let's not do theatrics. But even if we had done a, a, a tour without theatrics, I think we would have proven to the world that we could, that our music could stand on its own. And we would have come back with, and the money we would have saved on doing a tour like that, we could have put into the most spectacular thing tour after that. And now we wouldn't have people saying that theatrics are a crutch that you guys can't play. When you hear your songs on the radio, what do you think of? Because, I mean, I hear like Desperado come on or Billion Dollar Babies and, you know, it takes me to a certain place. But where does it take you? Well, I'm happy that people still care about those songs. But, you know, whenever I hear one of my songs, I go into work mode. All of a sudden, <laughs> I'm thinking about the bass part and this and that. No, oh, I might have done that a little different or whatever. You know, I'm proud of the songs, but, you know, uh, it's hard for me to listen Actually, it, as a musician, it's hard for me to listen to most any music and just just enjoy it as music without analyzing the bass part or, hey, wait a minute, why did he go to the major chord there? I would have gotten to a minor, you know, and all that. <laughs> but, uh, of course, I'm proud. Uh, it's, uh, you know, all of the fans, uh, we get out and, and do, like, these... Uh, monster conventions once in a while and stuff. And basically there's a line of people that all want to come up and tell me about how much uh, our music meant to them. And, and it's interesting too, because everybody has a story about a concert in the seventies and it always starts out with what kind of car they had, what road they drove on to get to the concert and, and everything's all very detailed until it gets to the concert and then everything gets very vague <laughs> 
But you were a dangerous band back then. I mean, I just remember the Billion Dollar Babies tour. And I think there was a riot right before the Toronto date or something. I mean, there was something very ominous about that tour that, you know, that was part of your image, I think. Well, I mean, come on, go all the way back to Phoenix, Arizona. We'd, we'd do a gig in Mesa, Arizona, and uh, we'd almost have to fight our way out of the place. And our car, the window would be broken on the car and the pickup with the rifles in the rack would be chasing us out of town. And uh, I mean, danger was was the something that we were used to. Bomb threats. We had bomb threats a lot at our uh, concerts. Uh, Glenn once got hit in the kneecap with a hammer and had to be hauled away in an ambulance. Uh, Neil once, when when we used to, we decided, or the promoter decided to have the audience behind us, Neil got a dart in the back, stuck in his back. Somebody threw wow. a dart, you know, and, um, you know, lots of stuff happened. Dodging full cans of beer uh, was common for us. And when we would do our big feather storm, it it was very dangerous because all kind you were trying to play and you're trying to be able to see through all these feathers while all kinds of objects were flying at you. And you know the scene in the Blues Brothers where they're at the place with the chicken wire in front of the stage? Yeah. I, I'm telling you, we did gigs like that. So, you know, when we got to the big time and it and it kept going, it's like uh, you know, the 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 one show that we can't, uh, stopped playing third song in was in uh, uh, Toledo, because not only were they throwing the full cans of beer, you know that venue sold cans, <laughs> beer in cans. If you throw a can of beer and it hits the stage, it explodes and suds go all over, and it's fun, right? Not fun for the band, you know. We were we were good at dodging things. You know, that's the thing that makes me sometimes people compare our live recordings, bootleg recordings to other bands. Well, they weren't having somebody poke them with a sword on stage and, and, and people throwing all this crap at them. You know, uh, we were good at pl keeping it together while, while uh, kind of, uh, you know, keeping alive, trying to stay alive. Uh, but, you know, we threw things at the audience, too. We just threw things that didn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> and then a few years later, you get back with the band. I, I don't know if it was triggered by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction or if it was before that. It was it was basically around that time. Well, I may be patting myself on the back a little too heartily, but I think my book had was a catalyst for a lot of things happening because uh, I took the high road in it. I didn't go out both barrels and blast everybody. And, and I told, and that's because uh, I started the book that way when I first started writing it. What made you write it? How did you get, what, what motivated you to write that book? Uh, two things. I was in the hospital. I had Crohn's disease for decades. And finally it got so bad that I ended up in the hospital in pretty serious condition. I had to be there for a month so that via IV only, no food in my mouth, just IV, they could build up my strength enough to survive the needed surgery. And snail mail started coming in from all over the world, you know, and I thought, oh my God, you know, people do still remember who I am, you know, and 
and care. So I decided, you know, how can I how can I kick the bucket if I start writing a book? I'll have to finish the book, right? <laughs> and, it's an excellent book, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, it's a, it was a uh, you know a mission of love, uh, but also because my daughters got so tired of hearing me. They grew up hearing me every time uh, there'd be a uh, somebody would do, write an article about Alice. And I would be sitting there talking about, well, that's not how it happened, you know. <laughs> or, you know, I'd take them to a concert. I took them to see Muse. And I'm like, oh, the guy's got mirrors on his guitar and they got weather balloons. We did that way back in the, you know. <laughs> and they're like, Dad, uh, why don't, uh, Dad, shut up and write a book, you know. <laughs> <laughs> did they read it? Yeah, they did. And, and they weren't. You know, you don't want to read certain things about your parents. So <laughs> that's true. Uh, there were things that, here and there. But, uh, you know, and since then, they went to Nashville and saw the original group uh, do an encore together with Alice. And then uh, and then they also attended some of the monster conventions. I mentioned the Chiller Theater in uh, Parsippany, which is an amazing event with all kinds of celebrities and mostly monster Halloween oriented. And and then they saw the outpouring from fans and then they realized, hey, I guess dad actually did something after all, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction and what it meant to you. Well, obviously it's a humbling thing, you know, and there's a lot of musicians that tend to criticize the rock hall for who's not in and, you know, and, and, Hey, they should be in. Why aren't they in? Why are they in? And they're not in and all that. Uh, I've never looked at it that way. I, I looked at it like if they inducted everybody that deserves to be in this year, what are they going to do next year? Wait for, you know, Justin Bieber to ripen or what? <laughs> uh, no, no offense to Justin Bieber. He's great. But so all of a sudden, the phone starts ringing off the hook. Emails flooded, fl way too many to even look at. Uh, you know, every person that I had ever met and a lot of people I had never met wanted to say congratulations for the nomination, right? And uh, all of a sudden, you couldn't get anything else done. You couldn't do anything. All these things came to a screeching halt and everything was about congratulations and what a warm feeling that is, you know, let's face it. And then, you know, a lot of bands had been nominated. Sheik, I think, was nominated like eight times or something before they finally got in. I'm not even sure if they ever did finally get in. I think they did. Uh, but anyway, so... Now uh, we're in Phoenix, Arizona, because Alice invited the band to play at his Christmas pudding fundraiser for the Solid Rock Foundation, which Alice and his wife uh, are a big part of, and raise money to for kids. If, if a kid wants to learn how to play guitar, if a kid wants to learn how to dance, produce albums, all kind of art, and they can go to this place and have this wonderful experience. So uh, every year Alice has this in December. And so it was 2010, uh, Michael, Neil, myself, Alice, 
And we had Steve Hunter sitting in on guitar and we were rehearsing in this warehouse and Alice's right-hand man, Kyler Clark comes in and says, stop playing, stop playing. We're like, what, what is it? He said, you're in. What? We're in? So the rest of that day was millions of interviews from all over. Uh, you know, I would go into one room and and take a phone call while Neil would be in the other room and then we'd switch and and uh, all these phones were gone and everything. And then uh, that night uh, at the uh, actual performance, Bob Ezrin was there, Shep Gordon was there, and uh, we were behind the curtain tuning up and all ready to play our show. And Bob Ezrin introduced us and at that point, he announced to 6,000 plus people that we had been inducted. And, oh, my God, it was the, the warmest reception. When that curtain opened, it was just, I mean, I'm getting chills up my spine just thinking about it now. Okay, so now we're in, at the uh, Waldorf Astoria, the Grand Ballroom. You know, all I can think about on stages like that is, Oh my God, Gene Krupa played here on this page. Ben right. Everybody you can think of that's great played on this stage. And who's in the audience? You know, Bruce Springsteen and uh, all of the, the honchos from the music business that you've ever read about in any way. Everybody's there, $3,000 a seat. <laughs> you know, and it's like, Oh my God, this is wonderful. Not only that, but we're being inducted with Darlene Love. Now, if you think of our our story with uh, a band making it to the top and then all of a sudden the band falls away and, and all that. Well, her story is much more, you know, heart, it, it moves you to think about she ended up scrubbing bathrooms and then she heard one of her songs on the radio and she thought, you know, I, sh I should, that's what I should be doing. And then she finally managed to, to get what she deserved. And we're standing all tuned up, ready to go on stage to play. And she's giving her acceptance speech. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, you know, we had it good. <laughs> You can, uh, all these fans out there, they're like, oh man, you guys got a raw deal. You know, we didn't. We did, we we were high school kids that that wanted to do this amazing thing and we did it. And that's that's what my book really ended up being about, not the negativity part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the same thing with uh, Darlene Love. She was so thankful. Now we come out on stage and they're and we're all facing Neil in the dark. And above us is this giant screen showing this film that the Rock Hall had put together of the best of why these guys are here, right? And it had Glenn Buxton and oh my God, you know. And I looked I looked over to Alice and I said, Man, this this is the real deal. And he said, Yep. <laughs> and you know, and then we played our show and then uh we wound up, uh, I wound up with uh, Cindy and uh, uh, Glenn Buxton's sister, Janice. We, we were in the bar. They, they tried to kick us out at three o'clock in the morning. We were drinking Manhattans. 
Anyway, uh, somebody showed up, uh, Toby Mammoth, who works with Alice and Kyler Clark, showed up with with uh, our uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame trophies because they were going to mail them to us. You know, we had one trophy, which was Alice's on, in the acceptance. And then uh, anyway, they said, hey, we got your trophies for you. Here you go. Now you don't have to wait for them to come in the mail. You know, and I'm like, that's great. You know, and then Janice... Buxton is saying, this is perfect. You know, uh, you guys all accept your award. And Glenn's, me, Glenn's sister and, and Glenn's brother, Ken, aren't allowed to go up and accept it. And instead, we get it in the bar. And I said, Janice, are you kidding? This is perfect for Glenn. <laughs> Glenn would have loved this. <laughs> I said, oh, so, hey, I got mine in a bar, too. You don't see me. You know? <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, we, we still joke about that uh, to this day. We all feel bad that Glenn wasn't still alive because, oh, my God, I, I, all I can do is imagine how great his acceptance speech would have been. He would have leveled the place. Uh, so, you know, things go around. And I, and I got to say also, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum, the staff from top, everybody there rolls out the red carpet. And it is just they, they treat uh, inductees like, like, like your royalty. When you go there, it's everything is royalty. And people criticize them. Uh, but the, the museum is separate from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame committee in New York that decides who that runs the, uh, the inductee program. Right. Uh, uh, so, you know, we've been to the Rock Hall. They take us down into the vaults. They dig out all of these things. Here, Jimi Hendrix wore this and Little Richard wore this and blah, and you know, and it's like, what else would you like to see? Who's your favorite? What's your favorite thing that you would like to see? And we're like, I don't know. Everything here is amazing. You know, <laughs> everything is amazing. And um, uh, so, you know, we're proud. We're friends with people that uh, work at the Rock Hall. And I, I tell everybody, you know, if you want to spend a day there, you're going to walk out feeling, oh, man, I wish I had spent a week here. I agree. What did you donate to the Hall of Fame? Well, uh, they had my Gibson EBO frog bass for a dozen years, but uh, I, I have it back now. Uh, and uh, we loaned them a bunch of uh, Cindy's costumes that she had made, stage costumes like Glenn Buxton's black and silver jumpsuit with the Jolly Roger on the chest and various things, and uh, some of the props that we had used in the show back then. Uh, so those were all on loan uh, for quite a few years, actually, way before we were inducted, in fact. And then uh, I donated some posters and things because they have a library where people can go that want to do research about bands and they can, and then they can look at these posters, and they could go through, page through these uh, 
portfolios and see all of these things written about us and, and everything. So I donated a lot of that stuff for educational purposes. I guess you could go just for the fun of it too. And right now they have the electric chair, the original one that, that I built in the garage at the Pontiac farmhouse. It's in a room that has pinball machines because there's a new pinball machine that's an Alice Cooper one. And then they have all these other pinball machines that are rock and roll themed. And uh, so the, the electric chair is there. It was loaned to another museum up in Hamilton, Ontario, near Toronto. Uh, but now it's back at the, at the Rock Hall in Cleveland. My last question, tell me about Blue Coop. Blue Coop are, uh, you know, uh, 1972, Alice Cooper had become headliners and Dr. John started opening for us. And then he decided that he was going to use a snake. And we're like, wait a minute, we use a snake. You can't use a snake. You know, I, we didn't say that. Management said that. And he said, why well, I use a snake a long time before you did? And, you know, well, you weren't using one at the beginning of the tour. So don't keep using it. And he kept using it. So we we decided we need to get a new opening band. And and we were at this outdoor festival in North Carolina, 72, beautiful day. And this band came on that had this giant backdrop with the cymbal and they started playing. And I said, Alice and Neil and I were walking around out in the crowd and we said, let's get those guys. Those guys are great. So uh, then we did a bunch of shows together and partied together and became friends over the years and would see each other at parties in Connecticut. And, you know, if, if Joe Bouchard had a song, hey, I got a song, I need a bass part, get over here, you know, and that kind of thing. Or just at parties, we'd get out the acoustic guitars and jam for the fun of it, uh, Buck Dharma. And then Albert, we would run into in New York City once in a while. And it got to a point where we, when CBGB was going under, they, not the final weekend, but a weekend or two before that, a bunch of musicians were jumping up on stage and jamming. At one point, it was Albert Bouchard on drums, Joe Bouchard on guitar, Rick Tedesco from my band, Dennis Dunaway Project on guitar, and, and me. And we did some songs. And this guy in the audience said, I want to hire you guys. You're great. I have this place in the Poconos and they'll love you. And we're like, well, we're not really a band. He said, I want Joe, Albert and Dennis to come and play this gig. And we're like, well, we're not really a band. And he's like, he kept upping the offer until we said, oh, we can't refuse this. <laughs> Let's go. And oh man, I tell you, we got there and we were winging it. I mean, I told Joe, I said, okay, just make sure I can see your chord hand because we're going to be playing songs that I never played before. We're, we even played some songs that I never even heard before. And, and, you know, and, and the crowd was loving it, you know, upstairs and down, there's a balcony and they were loving it. Everything we did, you know, it's like uh, I joked that somebody could fart and they would applaud. But anyway, yeah, we so we did like, I think, two sets and it got down to Joe and Albert doing some acoustic uh, Blue Oyster Cult songs. And, and, and then we went in the back room and started packing up and the owner said, you can't pack up. They'll tear this place apart. 
you got to do another set. And he kept offering us more money. And we're going, okay, (laughs) we'll do it. And uh, after that, we said, you know, we had so much fun. Let's start a band. So now we've been together for, let's see, I lose track with this uh, pandemic thing. Uh, But it's been like, we've been together for like 12, at least 12 years. We have three albums out. We've done a lot of gigs, a lot of a lot of big gigs. We did big festivals. We did a lot of opera houses in Europe and upstate New York. And, you know, uh, it's just, we've got the best of three worlds, really. We can do Alice Cooper tunes. We can do Blue Oyster Cult tunes. And we can do our originals. So when we go to write a set, if it's a two-hour set, we're banging our heads against the wall about what to leave out, you know. You know, we're down in the trenches. And so, yeah, check out Blue Coop. And uh, and I like what you're doing. I like your show. I, I like the uh, variety of music that you uh, bring in. And, and it's a good thing. Well, thank you. As I said, as a, as a young teenager, your band meant a lot to me. So to be able to talk to you this many years later, um, it's a thrill for me. And, and your music, I still listen to a lot. So thank you so much for doing this. Okay, great. Yes, thanks for inviting me. And we'll be in touch. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.